Very many welcomes to this uh, LSE Ideas uh, public lecture, organised by LSE Ideas. Uh, I am Professor Michael Cox, as you can see uh, on the back behind me, and they always call me chair, but I'm not chair of LSE. Uh, I'm director of LSE Ideas, uh, for which I get paid a good deal less than being chair of LSE, I'd imagine. Um, we're delighted to welcome here this evening uh, Sir Malcolm Rifkin, who doesn't need much introduction, but I'll say a few words. Uh, I was reading the Daily Telegraph, and it said that you are one of the Conservative... You have been, or maybe still are, one of the Conservative Party's big beasts for more than 30 years. You were described in the same article as a suave Scot with a sharp mind. Does that sound familiar? Um, but a key ally and advisor to every Conservative leader since 1979. Uh, Sir Malcolm had the great privilege of being born in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh in particular, where he was educated at George Watson's College and then Edinburgh University, where he studied law. He was called to the bar in 1969. He was then an MP uh, for Edinburgh Pentlands, I believe this is right, Malcolm, from 1974 to 1997. And he held several leading posts in the governments of Mrs. Thatcher and John Major, Secretary of State for Scotland, Defence Secretary, and many other positions, Foreign Secretary, of course, until 1997, when the Blair government swept all before it, it seemed. Uh, Malcolm then stood for Kensington's seat and was elected in the 2010 general election with a majority, it says here, of 8,616 votes. And was appointed then to many positions, including becoming chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee by the then Prime Minister, David Cameron. Uh, Sir Malcolm has been known for very many things, apart from being a suave Scot with a sharp mind. He was certainly known for opposing two things, um, the Iraq War back in 2002 and 2003, uh, quite relevant in the, in the light of the recent Chilcot report, and of course, very much was on the side of Remain, in other words, opposed to leaving the EU. Sir Malcolm Rifkin has made many decisions in his life. One of the worst was to be appointed as a visiting professor by King's College London in their Department of War Studies. I've just been talking to him about this, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be talking afterwards more in more detail. But anyway, congratulations on that appointment. Uh, and in July 2016, namely this month, he wrote his memoirs, Power and Pragmatism. And that is what we're going to listen to tonight. So, Malcolm, welcome to the LSE. We're very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say, and I wonder if we could give him a proper LSE welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that extremely friendly introduction. <laughs> President Lyndon Johnson once on such an occasion said, it's a sort of an introduction which his father would have enjoyed and his mother would have believed. So I'm <laughs> grateful to you. Uh, I, I'm conscious that uh, tonight the last thing you'll be wanting is a very long speech. I shall therefore follow the wise precedent of King Henry VIII, who apparently said to each of his six wives, please don't worry, I don't intend to keep you long. <laughs> but I hope we'll have maximum time for questions, discussion, and any comments you wish to, to put to me. It's a pleasure being in LSE. I've had a fair bit of contact with LSE over the years, uh, but I can't help this evening but recollect uh, a particular event uh, involving your university, uh, which happened when I was Defence Secretary, Minister of Defence, between 92 and 95. And I was visiting South Africa, and apartheid had just disappeared, Mandela was the president, and I was having dinner with the then Deputy Defence Minister of South Africa, a white South African communist called Ronnie Casrills, 
uh, who had been educated at the LSE. And he was the head of, uh, I had been the, the head involved in Umconte with Caesar, which was the armed struggle wing of the ANC. And even when Mandela renounced uh, that uh, armed struggle, uh, casuals and people like him went the same, uh, continued with the odd explosive here and there. And uh, when I was uh, sitting next to him, I, we got on very well, very easy to talk to. And I said, tell me, um, uh, it was often argued by the apartheid government that uh, you guys were all trained in the Soviet Union. Was that true? And he said, yes, actually it was. We were trained in the Ukraine. And then the conversation moved on, and I asked him, can you tell me, um, why when Mandela gave up the armed struggle, why did you not follow him at that time? He said, oh, well, you know, we were absolutely convinced, he said, that the white regime would never give up voluntarily. They would have to be forced out of power. Only by an armed struggle would that work. And I said, is that what they taught you in the Soviet Union? He said, no, 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 no. That's what they taught me at the LSE. <laughs> Uh, it was many years ago, I hasten to add, so I'm sure things have, have changed uh, since then. Uh, this evening is, uh, you've been kind enough to invite me to speak, uh, I won't stick rigidly to it, but I'll stick my, a fair bit to it. Uh, my memoirs which have come out, which you can, indeed can acquire a copy on the, the way out if you so choose, um, uh, which uh, came out last week. And uh, I'd always intended to write my memoirs sometime in the distant future, uh, last year I realized that the distant future had arrived and I better start uh, at that stage. Uh, and I, when I decided to write it, I was thinking originally just in terms of a fairly uh, conventional memoir from birth date to yesterday. Um, but I decided actually if you've been in public life that actually what you should try and do, if it's legitimate, is to try and find some sort of narrative which is not only just about the people you've met and the places you've been to and what you've seen, but to some extent explains the choices you made in your own political life, your public life, uh, what took me into politics, uh, what uh, influenced the decisions I took, and uh, how, what explains some of the quarrels and disputes I had with some of my political colleagues, most notably with Margaret Thatcher uh, when I was uh, her Secretary of State for Scotland. So in choosing the title Power and Pragmatism, uh, basically, it's not particularly original, but basically it was to emphasize that pretty well, when you divide politicians and people in political life, you can divide them according to the parties they belong to, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But it's equally legitimate also uh, to divide them, and I've summed it up by whether you are a conviction politician or a pragmatist. And I emphasized right at the very beginning uh, that even if you think of yourself as a conviction politician, uh, these, such people can be very pragmatic when it suits them. But equally, those who would call themselves pragmatists, as I do, it doesn't mean we don't have convictions. It is that we come to the process of trying to resolve issues in a slightly different way. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was, of course, one of the arch examples of the conviction politician. She had very strong beliefs, very strong instincts, and she was always very reluctant to depart from them. She could be persuaded, uh, but it was with some sense of almost guilt that she would that the lady might be for turning uh, occasionally. I remember one occasion in her presence when somebody said to her, Mrs. Thatcher, do you believe in consensus? And we all knew she certainly did not. She despised those who tried to work for consensus because she considered it woolly-minded and uh, avoiding hard decisions. To our surprise, she said, yes, I do. We said, you do? She said, yes. And she thought for a moment and <laughs> said, yes, there should be a, I believe there should be a consensus behind my convictions. <laughs>
<laughs> when she said it, I thought she was joking, but as the years have gone by, I've realized she was probably deadly serious. Uh, so there are these distinctions, and they don't just apply to domestic policy. They apply, and a lot of what I'll say this evening, applies in relation to foreign policy. And you've all heard the argument, should we or should we not have an ethical foreign policy? Why do we not have an ethical foreign policy? Some people have claimed they were going to have an ethics-based foreign policy. Most memorably, Robin Cook made remarks in that uh, direction when he became uh, foreign secretary, as did Tony Blair. And central to my belief is not that ethics are irrelevant to foreign policy, far from it. But it's not good enough simply to conclude that as long as you are ethically sound, that your foreign policy is sensible or going to work. And equally, sometimes, you have to make incredibly painful decisions for very sensible reasons as to the company you keep. Uh, the single most obvious example uh, was the alliance that Churchill and Roosevelt made with Joe Stalin. Not because they had any illusions about Stalinism at that time, or what he represented, or the system that he had created, or the gulag, or anything of that kind, but because the overriding requirement, even greater requirement, was the defeat of Adolf Hitler, and they came to the entirely rational and historically correct decision that without Soviet Union as an ally, at the very least it would take many more years and might not even happen. Uh, so these are just an obvious example, but for most of us, the decisions we have to take are more finely graded, and I'll come back to some of these uh, later on. So let me just give some examples in my own life uh, where I've had to try and deal with these issues. Now, when you are a member of, uh, let, let's put coalitions on one side, they're rather unusual because you have differences between the parties within a government. But that's unusual in the United Kingdom, as, as we all know. But when you have a government, uh, even people who belong to the same party can very often strongly disagree, sometimes about objectives, sometimes about ideals. That's not so likely, but very often about how you pursue the policy. Margaret Thatcher, in her memoir, says she had reservations when she appointed me Secretary of State for Scotland. Uh, she said I was a very good speaker and very impressive at getting the uh, various uh, legislation on the right to buy in Scotland through. Uh, but I had resigned when she was shadow leader of the opposition uh, on the issue of devolution. I was a, one of those who believed uh, that we should have been more supportive as the Conservative policy officially was in favour of some form of Scottish Assembly. So she had her doubts about me. But if the truth be told, she didn't have that many to choose from uh, when you're choosing a Conservative uh, Secretary of State <laughs> in Scotland uh, because even at that time we, we had a lot more MPs than we have now, but even then it was only about 15 or 20 uh, of, of the 350 in the House of Commons. Now, I have to be saying something which perhaps is a good example of the sort of guy I am, which can sometimes frustrate some of the commentators. Uh, I voted for Margaret Thatcher as leader of the Conservative Party, although I would see myself as coming from the sort of liberal end of the party. I preferred her to William Whitelaw or Geoffrey Howe, who were two main opponents for the leadership. Why? Because I'd seen her in operation. I'd just come into the House of Commons the year before. <clears throat> I saw her in operation in Parliament. She was already clearly the best and most courageous fighter. She, was, uh, she had a huge amount of energy and passion, and the other candidates did not. And I was also slightly excited by the idea that the fuddy-duddy old Tory party 
would be about to be the first in the Western world, virtually, <coughs> to choose a woman as its leader and as its potential uh, prime minister. And that also excited me, and I was aware that it might indeed be electorally advantageous anyway. And I never regretted that, because although I had some very powerful differences with her, uh, most of the time I could have followed her in most places. Uh, some of the time I could have cheerfully done something else. Um, but these were the exception. And why did they happen? In my own case, in the Scottish context, she could never realize that whoever occupies that post, this is in the days before a Scottish Parliament, has two jobs, not one. That yes, you are the Cabinet's man in Scotland, but if you're going to do that job properly, you also have to be Scotland's man in the Cabinet. You have a territorial responsibility, as does the Welsh Secretary or the Northern Ireland Secretary. And in these pre-devolution days, there are times when the Scottish interest might not be the same as perceived in London. And my real disagreements with Margaret Thatcher were not about her ultimate objectives, but that they simply could not be implemented in the same timescale as in south of the border, and sometimes the detail had to be significantly different. And when I said that, she distrusted my motives. And some people encouraged her to distrust my motives, uh, saying this was just an attempt to soften uh, Thatcherism north of the border. And so uh, it's all in the book, so I won't try and go through the detail this evening. It would bore many of you and uh, would leave time for other issues. But uh, she says in her own memoirs that Thatcherism was rebuffed in Scotland. She's actually wrong. What was rebuffed in Scotland was Thatcher, not Thatcherism. Uh, when we passed the legislation called the Tenants' Rights Act, giving council tenants the right to buy, before then, Scotland had fewer homeowners than communist Hungary had, far less than in England. We had about 35% home ownership in Scotland when it was about 60% in England already. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Scots uh, queued up to buy their council, tenants, council houses. Uh, when uh, the privatizations took place, the Scots were as enthusiastic about buying shares as were their English and Welsh uh, fellow uh, citizens. Uh, when we created school boards, which were rather like school governors in, in, in England, uh, parents were keen to exercise uh, real uh, influence. Uh, what they couldn't, however, do is change their voting habits. Uh, because culturally, Scotland had a much larger traditional industrial working class population close to the Labour Party in those days, which seemed invincible. Strange to think that now. Uh, and so they almost felt guilty about buying their council house and buying their shares in BT or whatever. And so the voting habits didn't change, unlike people of a similar socio-economic background in the south of England, who, because they were part of a predominantly more middle-class society, uh, were quite willing to not just make the social change, but change some of their political allegiance at the same time. Can I just say one other thing about Scotland, and just to bring it really up to date, because obviously Scotland today is a very different Scotland. Uh, I think that when the history of this period comes to be written, uh, one of the most important developments will be what George Osborne did, not as Chancellor of the Exchequer as such, but the massive decentralization of resources to the various cities and regions, particularly in the north of England. Because what we now have, in a very British way, is devolution throughout the United Kingdom, but different kinds of devolution in different parts of the kingdom. So we have a very powerful Scottish Parliament, 
We have a Welsh Assembly, not yet a Parliament with lesser powers. We have in Northern Ireland institutionalised power sharing, where you have to have a coalition of Catholic and Protestant parties, regardless of the results of the election. England was the exception until recently, and England does not want to be carved up with regional parliaments, but by transferring control over billions of pounds to English regions and English cities, uh, that creates a similar degree of localism and of local control. And so in a very British way, we don't have a written constitution, in a very British way, we are stumbling, and I use that word deliberately, we are stumbling towards a quasi-federal system in the United Kingdom of different kinds of devolution or decentralization. So although we still have a United Kingdom, wow, it's a very different United Kingdom to what existed 20 years ago or at any time over the last 200 years. And my own prediction, and I may be terribly wrong, but my own prediction is what's happening now in England, as well as in Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland, will reconcile at least a majority of Scots to staying part of the Union for a very long time to come. I can't prove that, but that's, I, I, I'll expand on that with the reasons for it later on if anybody wants to question me on that. Let me move to what was really my original reason for choosing a political life. What attracted me about politics originally was not domestic politics. It was a fascination when I was at university, perhaps even in my final years at school, and what was happening around the world. I grew up in the 1960s. And that was, of course, a time when many of the remaining colonies and territories of the old British Empire became new states, new countries in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. And after my first degree at Edinburgh University, I, I was doing a master's degree, and my special subject was African politics. And I got a temporary job teaching at what was then Southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, where I lived for just under two years, did my master's in the politics of land, which at that time nobody had looked at, but which has turned out to be the single most dominant theme in Zimbabwean politics uh, and explaining Mugabe's relationship with the, the white population. So if you'd asked me then uh, which department of government, if I ever was in parliament and was offered a job in the government, I would most wish to do, it wouldn't have been prime minister or chancellor, uh, it would have been Foreign Secretary or in Foreign Office at the very least. And I didn't think it would happen, but it did happen. And I, again, it's in the book, so I won't go into the detail of that. But my first role in the Foreign Office was as a junior minister, the most lowly form of ministerial life, a parliamentary undersecretary. And it took General Galtieri to invade the Falklands uh, for that, even that to happen, uh, because Lord Carrington resigned as Foreign Secretary, as did one or two of his colleagues in the Foreign Office. There was a reshuffle. And Mrs. Thatcher switched me from the Scottish office to the Foreign Office as a junior minister. And what was interesting was the job I was given as a junior minister. Uh, I was invited by the Foreign Secretary, Francis Pym at that time, to have responsibility for the day-to-day -day relationship between the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. You know, I was the most lowliest form of ministerial life, and here I'm being given that kind of responsibility under the Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister, but nevertheless, that was the bit of the world I was given. And at first I was very puzzled. I was thrilled and delighted, but puzzled. And then, of course, it became very obvious why. Uh, several years before, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Uh, martial law had been declared in Poland, banning solidarity. Our relationship in that period of the Cold War was frozen. And uh, Mrs. Thatcher had no desire to, at that stage, unfreeze it. And if they felt insulted having a mere parliamentary undersecretary in charge of the relationship, uh, then all to the better. 
the first visitor I got within a few days of taking up that job was our ambassador in Moscow. And this is 1982 I'm talking about. And he said to me, Kurt Chappell, Curtis Keeble, a very distinguished ambassador, and he said, um, I'm very concerned. Nobody seems to be interested in the, in, in the government, in, this, in the British government or even in the American government, about the new younger members of the Politburo who one day are likely to lead the Soviet Union. I said, who are you talking about? He mentioned two names, neither of which I'd ever heard of before, a chap called Grigory Romanov and the other Mikhail Gorbachev. And he said, I'm not making predictions, but you know, they are 10, 15 years younger than the geriatrics running the Soviet Union. Uh, it is highly likely one of them is going to be one day in charge. And again, to cut down the, the, the time it took, this took about a year or so, and Geoffrey Howe became foreign minister, and eventually we, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was persuaded to have a seminar at Chequers, to which I was one of the ministers invited, and that gave us authority uh, to invite, or to try to invite, Gorbachev, who was by far the most interesting of the two younger ones, uh, to come to the United Kingdom. And he'd only once been to the West before, to Canada. And we, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, I remember at the time, said, well, very well, I will not object to you inviting Gorbachev to the United Kingdom, but I want to make one thing clear. I will never go to Moscow. <laughs> when she said that, I, as a joke, not as a serious prediction, whispered, she'd never heard me, I whispered in Geoffrey Howe's ear, she might be happy to go to one of their funerals. Being anti-communist, funerals would, of communists would have, might have attracted her. Of course, as it turned out, that's exactly what did happen. She went to Brezhnev's funeral, and then Andropov's, and then Chernenko's. Uh, it became a form of uh, a special kind of diplomacy that the West indulged in, because it enabled them to get uh, first-hand uh, access to some of these people. But before these visits to Moscow happened, Gorbachev came to the UK, and she saw him at Chequers, the Prime Minister's residence, and what was particularly unusual was he came, not by himself, but with Raiza Gorbacheva, his wife. And that was by no means common when uh, Soviet leaders in those days were traveling. Sometimes you didn't even know if they had wives or children. They were very uh, unhappy about going into private details. But she was not only his wife. She was elegant. She was uh, cerebral, highly intellectual, rather serious but very, very attractive, very interesting, clothed conscious, and immediately, of course, the media took an enormous interest in her. And when they arrived, and uh, Gorbachev and Mrs. Thatcher went off to have their tete-a-tete -tete and get to know each other, I was instructed to be in charge of uh, Mrs. Gorbachev and to show her round checkers. And I've never forgotten, as we went into the library of checkers, uh, through the interpreter, she said, you know, Mr. Rifkind, I am delighted to be in England. I have always wanted to be in the country of Hobbes and Locke. <laughs> Not what your average Soviet wife would have said, uh, but it was rather symptomatic. And then she said how she had, uh, and Misha, her husband, had read quite a lot of what she called contemporary English literature, by which she meant 20th century, and she mentioned names like Iris Murdoch and C.P. Snow uh, and uh, Graham Greene, and then she turned to me and said, Mr. Rifkind, who is your favorite contemporary Soviet novelist? <laughs> at, at that particular time, the only name I could even think of was Solzhenitsyn, and he had not been rehabilitated yet. So our ambassador came to my rescue uh, with someone whom uh, uh, he had heard of, and which uh, 
the contented herd. Um, it's worth remembering that the success of these meetings, and you will, many of you will, probably most of you will recall or be aware that at the end of the meeting, Mrs. Thatcher, when she met the press, said the famous words, uh, I have concluded he is a man with whom we can do business. Now, it's important to realize what that meant and what it didn't mean. It didn't mean that they had reached agreement on anything. They, hadn't reached any, they weren't negotiating in any event. They were just getting to know each other. But even getting to know each other didn't mean there was an identity of minds. And she was the Iron Lady. He was a convinced communist at that stage. He ceased to be one some years later. But he believed that although Stalin was a ghastly aberration, they had to go back to Lenin, and somehow Lenin was okay. That was the line he took. So they didn't agree with anything, with each other. But two things happened, both at that visit and when she next saw him. First of all, they began to understand where each of them was coming from. What were the factors that influenced them? What were the factors that were important? Some misunderstandings were removed. But even more important, and it's crucially important as we speak, they began to trust one another. Something about the chemistry worked. And one of the great disturbing worries about our current relationship with uh, Russia, Mr. Putin, is the trust's gone. That's disappeared. It may be very difficult to get back. Whatever you think of Putin, he's not a Gorbachev. He's a former KGB man, slightly less imaginative, whereas Gorbachev had incredible curiosity uh, for the, the, the wider world and was willing to see if there are aspects of it that could be absorbed into the, what was then the Soviet uh, system. And remember his willingness, in what became known as perestroika and glasnost, reconstruction, openness, was because he was well aware that the Soviet economy was not performing. He'd been to Canada. Uh, he saw parts of England when he was in Britain, and he saw that the way of life, the standard of living of ordinary people was immeasurably higher. Uh, than uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, somebody once remarked that uh, communism only works either in heaven where they don't need it or in hell where they have it already. Uh, uh, I recall hearing how, this probably is apocryphal, but I'm going to say it anyway. A British diplomat was visiting Moscow uh, during a particular period when the Soviet economy was doing very poorly. And in his speech, which had to be translated, he used the old biblical phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he heard that that was translated into Russian as we have lots of vodka, but we're rather short of meat. <laughs> I said it was apocryphal. But who knows? It, who knows? It, it might, might, have, might have happened. Um, the crucial thing about the Thatcher statement about a man we can do business with was not because Britain could do much about that. We were, even in those days, we weren't a superpower. But she was very close to Ronald Reagan. And if anybody else had said that, Reagan would probably have dismissed it as being naive idealism. When the Iron Lady said, he's a man, Reagan sat up and thought, well, wait a moment. And we all know what happened. I'm not going to repeat the events of the next few years, but they led not just to the end of the Cold War. Two things happened which were certainly not predictable. The first was the end of the Cold War without a shot being fired. And with the countries of the Warsaw Pact that had been forced into communism, like Poland and Hungary and Czech, Czechoslovakia and so forth, the Baltic states, all being able to go their own way and adopt completely different political systems and alliances uh, without any physical conflict, 
with Moscow. Uh, but secondly, of course, it was also the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, which had been even less predicted than the end of the Cold War. That the, because the Soviet Union wasn't just a Soviet empire, it was the Russian Empire, with boundaries that went back to Peter the Great, as the empire had expanded century after century, and then suddenly it became 15, 16 separate countries. And we're still living with the consequences of that because of the difficulty of many Russians, including Putin, to come to terms with the fact that they are no longer the kind of empire they were for centuries, not just since 1917 uh, before. So these were pretty extraordinary periods. Let me, I said I wasn't going to speak for too long. Let me just say, I want to speak very briefly about two other things. One is Europe. Uh, and Europe is not just an issue that's dominating our consciousness in the last few weeks for obvious reasons. What, I, I was on the Remain side, as was mentioned earlier, and I'm deeply sorry we are leaving the European Union. I think we will lose more than we will gain. But even I have to acknowledge that our relationship with the rest of the European Union has been dysfunctional right since we joined. Uh, and that says something. You know, it wasn't just Boris Johnson or Michael Gove or uh, recent propaganda or David Cameron saying the wrong thing or whatever. If you think about it, why didn't we join when the six signed the original Treaty of Rome? They were desperate to have us. We weren't interested. Why did General de Gaulle, perhaps very wisely, veto our application, claiming that we were not really European in the sense that would make it work? And in retrospect, how right he seems to have been. Uh, why did even Mrs. Thatcher, who strongly supported the single, uh, single market, uh, nevertheless increasingly become skeptical, sometimes downright hostile, to the whole European project? And why under successive governments, Labour or Conservative, all starting off saying they wanted to be at the heart of Europe, unable to deliver. And no government, Labour or Conservative, Blair, Brown, Major, Cameron, had any interest in joining the single currency, nor did the British public, or Schengen. So you have to ask, why is that? And my own view, it's an oversimplification, but I think it, I think it goes to the core of the issue, it's down to the question of our attitude towards supranational powers, loss of sovereignty in other words. For most of continental Europe, they see the EU framework, the European Court of Justice, the European Parliament, as all reinforcing their democracy and the rule of law in their countries. Many of them were communist countries for 50 years. Their democracy only began in the 1990s. Some of them were fascist countries like Spain and Portugal or Mussolini's Italy, obviously Hitler's Germany, and had very decades of totalitarian government. There too, they often worry how deep the democratic system, the rule of law, is. Others were occupied during the war for several years, like France. We, in comparison, have been a very fortunate country, not to any great merit on our part, just the circumstances, perhaps being an island various historical reasons. We have not been invaded for a thousand years. Our parliamentary system has been unchallenged since Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. So for us, there's no obvious benefit unless, unless there is, it can be demonstrated that our prosperity or our standard of living will improve 
by sharing sovereignty in some area or our security. So when it came, for example, to creating NATO, we found it easier than the French to share sovereignty because we saw that in the Cold War, without the United States leadership, uh, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the consequences of that Cold War were very unpredictable. So we had no hang-ups about it because the benefit was obvious. And likewise, Mrs. Thatcher with the single market took the view, and I, I was her Europe minister at that time, I was Minister of State, dealing with European issues. She even supported majority voting because she realized that the protectionist countries in Europe, and particularly the French, would prevent the single market being created if you didn't have majority voting. So we, if I, what I'm really saying is we looked at it in a pragmatic way. Pragmatically, we could see advantages in some areas. What we hated, as did most people in Britain, was when they heard people in Brussels saying we must have more Europe, whatever that means. Somehow that more Europe was automatically a good thing, less Europe was automatically bad. Our view, I'm not saying whether we're right or wrong, that's for people to make their own judgment, but when I say our view, I mean successive governments, uh, Labour and Conservative, uh, took the view that more Europe was not automatically desirable. You had to be satisfied that there was sufficient benefit that made it worthwhile to accept the democratic deficit that we would no longer have our own parliament and government accountable to our own electorate uh, to have to justify their behaviour or be rejected uh, at an election and, and so forth. So these issues uh, have not yet been uh, resolved. If I may just make one cheerful comment, because <laughs> Europe is, can sometimes be a very dull, sober subject. One of the most delightful moments I had as a minister, and I was a minister for 18 years in four different departments, it was at a European Council of Ministers meeting uh, when we were discussing, in the 1980s, the enlargement of uh, the EU to include Spain and Portugal, having, they having just got rid of uh, Franco and Salazar. And the Greek Foreign Minister, Greece was a member already at that stage, the Greek Foreign Minister, Mr. Harold Lombopoulos, uh, was making a passionate speech entirely in Greek about Spain. And at one stage during his speech, the interpreter, translating him into English, quoted him as using the phrase, putting a Spaniard in the works. <laughs> Immediate collapse of all the Anglophiles, because for those of you who might be aware, spanner, a spanner in the works is an English expression uh, about somebody having made a mess of uh, a particular problem. But he, he was interpreted as, as putting a Spaniard in the works. And to this day, the Greek minister doesn't know what he said to cause this <laughs> hilarious response. I'm going to speak for five more minutes, but I just want to end by um, sharing with you what is the only hard news that is in the book in the sense of some major event that was not previously known. Uh, and that was the uh, uh, secret diplomacy I was involved in as Foreign Secretary with the Argentine Foreign Minister on the Falklands. And I had two meetings, which were never disclosed at that time and have not been disclosed until, this, uh, until last week. Uh, one uh, on the Iguazu Falls, uh, the border between Argentina and Brazil, and Brazil, where I actually crossed the Iguazu Falls. You know, Foreign Minister Diego de Tella invited me to, I was visiting Brazil, and he said, will you, and uh, sorry, I should mention the background to this was, we had met uh, on several occasions as part of a multilateral gathering of ministers and he'd said, look, my president, who was Carlos Menem, uh, the government in Argentina is very keen to bring this dispute to an end. 
We have some very radical proposals we wish to put to the United Kingdom. I'm not at liberty to tell you what they are at the moment, but I want us to be able to meet so that we can discuss this. Uh, I immediately told John Major, we were both very skeptical, but we thought, well, we, we, we cannot risk uh, not at least finding out what they have in mind if they, are, if they say they are very radical. So the first meeting was at the lunch at the Iguazu Falls, uh, just inside, I was the first minister to go into Argentina since the war. And I, said, I had said to him, because uh, I, I knew he was very Anglophile, very pro-British, I said, I need to be able to say to my Prime Minister that whatever you're telling me has the authority of your President, that this is not just your own personal commitment. And he understood that. And during the lunch, he passed the phone to me, and the President was at the other end of the line. The President spoke English, and he said, you can assume that whatever you're being told has my full authority, so that was extremely helpful. And he wanted to have a particular day, two days, so that we had time to go through various ideas and thoughts that they had. And would I be able to agree to a meeting in the UK, if that's where we wanted, or somewhere else, it didn't matter. So I said, well, in principle, my Prime Minister says this might be possible, but we have one absolute condition, and that is that if we're going to meet with you, we have to have on our side of the table at least one or two of the Falkland Islanders themselves from their council, Islands Council. We are not getting into a situation where it might become known that we've discussed their future with you without them being present. That, that will be a source of great mischief and uh, it can't be possible. Now that was a very difficult thing for him to accept because as we see with Spain over Gibraltar or Argentina over the Falklands, as far as they're concerned, the Islanders should not be involved. This is government to government if in these matters are to be discussed. They don't like having to admit that the islanders have a legitimate interest uh, and have to be taken into account in deciding their future. But he went back to his president, and to our surprise, he came back and said, yes, we can accept that. <clears throat> so once we knew that, that, we thought, well, they really are serious uh, um, because of these concessions that they had made. So it's worth hearing. And we met. Uh, uh, for a weekend in a place you've been hearing about recently called Chivney, uh, the Foreign Secretary's residence, which in my day I did not have to share with two other junior <laughs> ministers. Uh, and uh, the island councillors arrived and the governor of the Falklands came. And I had, incidentally, I said to John Major, I think the other thing that we need to do before this happens, I'd better go and see Margaret Thatcher. She was no longer Prime Minister. But if anyone had heard of secret talks with the Argentinians over the Falklands, if she didn't know the background, she might have gone ballistic. Uh, and uh, so it was a bit of insurance policy. As soon as she heard the Falkland Island councillors would be present, she was entirely relaxed and couldn't have been more helpful. So what, was it, what happened? Basically, again, I can expand later on if you want me to, but basically what they had wanted to propose was that, first of all, the Falkland Islands would cease to be a British colony, but would not become part of Argentina, would become, for all practical purposes, their words, an independent country. But not 100% independent. So, so that first point was big progress because they said it wouldn't become part of Argentina. They said, secondly, we accept in the real world the United Kingdom would have to remain responsible for the defense of the islands. That was a very big concession particularly in the context of the war that, and the invasion that had happened before. And uh, that was the plus side. So we thought we'd better wait till we see the small print. 
And that's when it began to be disappointing. Because our proposal was that yes, there would be a British governor, but there must also be an Argentine vice governor or deputy governor. Now that means sharing sovereignty. That means a condominium. Uh, and there were various other requirements of that kind. And they were also unable to say that their claim to the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands, or the Malvinas as they call them, would be dropped and withdrawn. They said we could suspend it for an indefinite period. Uh, now that just was not on. It might have been if the war had never happened. It is not inconceivable that some discussions of a, could have been prolonged on that issue, and who knows what it might have been led to. But uh, the war was too recent. The, the people who died in that war was too recent. Uh, but, uh, and the United Kingdom had always made clear that we were not prepared to share sovereignty with the Argentinians. And, and of course, the islanders were adamant about that. So the talks came to a conclusion very amicably. There was no hard feelings. And indeed, on the evening, on the Saturday evening, they were, they are, we would finish on the Sunday morning, on the Saturday evening, Achievening has a snooker room, a rather fine billiard table, and the Argentine foreign minister and one of the Falkland Island councillors played snooker, uh, and I never thought it necessary or desirable to inquire as to who won. Uh, the following morning, as they were leaving, one of the Falkland Island councillors gave to the Argentine foreign minister a photograph of part of the Falklands and said, please keep this as a memento. It's the only island, part of the islands you'll ever have, namely the photograph. Uh, but all done in, in re reasonable lightness of, of touch. Uh, so can I uh, simply conclude my remarks? I'm very happy to respond either on these matters or on any other issues anyone would like to raise. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, do you want to stand to, to take the questions? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, I think there's going to be probably quite a lot of questions, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask the first one. Um, you, you try to keep away from predictions, I noticed, Sir Malcolm, but you did hint at one about the future of the United Kingdom and, and Scotland's position within it, uh, and no doubt you'll get some questions about that as well. Would you be prepared to make a few predictions as to where you think you'll see the United Kingdom in about a year's time? Do you mean in relation to Brexit or do you mean more yes, widely? Yes, yes, yes. In relation to Brexit, okay. Yes, yes. Um, Rather than the constitutional, let's talk more broad. Right, I, I've for years always subscribed to the, the famous Kipling remark, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. So I think when major developments of that kind happen in mature democracies, very crucial point, when it, when it happens because of democratic judgments, I'm not talking about invasions, uh, then things are never as wonderful as you hope they might be nor never as bad as you fear they could be. Uh, what we are already seeing is an adjustment, not just by Britain, but by the United States, by other countries around the world, by the Europeans themselves, to the fact that there is now an acknowledgement that we will not be part of the European Union some years from now. But, and it's a very important but, because the United Kingdom is the fifth largest economy in the world, because it is a member of the Security Council, because it is a country with a significant military capability, uh, because uh, of the co uh, all the various other factors mm. that are part of our influence in the world, uh, there is a recognition that you don't 
bite off your nose to spike your face. But, uh, at the end of the day, you, you, these are all democracies. These are all governments with their own internal problems. And therefore, we will find accommodations. I, I think, if I can be more specific, I have not the slightest doubt that there will be a free trade arrangement uh, for the United Kingdom, both with Europe, with the United States, with other countries. In some respects, that free trade arrangement may be even better than we've had as part of our EU arrangements. In some respects, it may not be. Uh, the problem we have, on, even on free trade, is that if we are negotiating with uh, the United States or with China, right. uh, by it, it must be right they would make more concessions to a market of half a billion than they'll make to a market of 65 million, however important Britain is. It's not as important. So our negotiating strength is not as uh, profound. But I think it will vary from product to product, depending on how much they penetrate our markets and, and so forth. So that part of it is OK. When you, sorry, if I can be a little bit clearer of what I'm trying to say. The big issue is the single market. But people forget the single market is a term we use for four separate things. One is free trade, which I've just been commenting on. Mm. The second is the free movement of capital, which we have no problem with. For years, we have allowed our currency to be convertible, capital can go wherever it likes. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to negotiate. That will continue mm. for the United Kingdom without any need for negotiation. The third is the free movement of labor. That's the one that is the sticking point for the United Kingdom. And I don't see much give on that, either by us or by our European colleagues, for all the reasons that have been commented on elsewhere. I think it's, well, the, the time, time scale is bad, from, uh, very unfortunate. In the next 10 years, there will be changes to the free movement of labor. You cannot sustain in the rest of Europe with such different levels of economic activity, and particularly when Europe expands to take in some of the Balkan countries, like Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, you cannot have free movement of labor in the, in the classic sense. So ultimately, that will be watered down, but it won't be soon enough to be of much use to our negotiations. So that's three of the four, free trade, freedom of labor, freedom of capital, it's the fourth freedom of services uh, that is actually what the problem is all about. And because you can't have free movement of services unless you accept free movement of labor, uh, that is where we're going to suffer. Uh, not 100% not suffer, but the, the two areas that will be most difficult for us, and it's already we're seeing evidence of it already, is any company around the world who wants to get access to the EU market of half a billion, many of them up till now have been choosing the United Kingdom for their headquarters or for their factories. It didn't matter where in Europe you were because you had equal access. Uh, that's going to be much less likely to be true and that applies to goods, not just services. Um, but also the City of London is going to find it's got much greater difficulties. Uh, it has, I mean, it's, for, purely for market reasons, the City of London has done infinitely more trading in euros than anywhere of the Eurozone. Uh, not because people had to come to London, but because they chose to, because that's where the expertise was. And I suspect the rules in the Eurozone will be changed to prevent that being able to happen in the future. So there will be downsides. But we'll survive. I mean, because we, I, I'm always astonished why a country of 65 million in a world of 6 or 7 billion is still the sixth largest economy. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Sir Malcolm. I think we'll now start taking some questions. Uh, where do we want to start? Um, let me start here. Where's the? Yeah, please. You can go, go into. I saw a hand with the black sleeve, which is slightly unclear. But yeah, that's the other hand with the black sleeve. 
Yes. I'm not a gentleman, but thank you. Okay, so I'll take I've got one a question. Uh, I've got a question um, regarding Margaret Thatcher. Would you agree with those who claim that she was suffering from Queen's Bee syndrome, that she didn't allow other women into her vicinity? What was the syndrome again? Queen, queen bee. Oh, queen yeah. bee. Only one queen bee. No, oh, right, no, no, no. Yes, I've just um, been reading about bees. Queen bee. It's, it's a very... I, I'm, I'm almost inclined to agree with you. Uh, I don't think it was a conscious decision not to. She, I mean, she had one appointment of Janet Young, Lady Young, as leader of the House of Lords, which was the only woman in her cabinet. Uh, there were quite a number of other women in Minister of State level. Um, but none of them were... Permitted. Now, I don't think it was a conscious decision. Uh, she was... This is, I'm getting into dangerous territory now because I can't be certain of what I'm about to say. But just as she would appoint people like Chris Patton or myself that she ideologically disagreed with but thought we were of a calibre, rightly or wrongly, she thought we were of a calibre that we would, the Cabinet would benefit from that, she, that, most of her appointments were made on that basis. She was not interested in whether somebody was male, female, black, white, brown, what religion they were, anything of that kind. She made judgments whenever there was vacancies as to which individuals she thought were going to be most helpful to have. And for whatever reason, uh, they were, uh, there were far fewer women uh, in the Conservative Parliamentary Party at that time. Uh, you know, so that, that may have been part of the explanation. So she was or was not a Queen Bee? She was a Queen Bee. She was a Queen Bee. No, no question about it. All right, we've got that. Okay. No question about it. Right. Uh, question here. And microphone at the top. You're with us? Good. And I'll take somebody at the top in a moment. Yeah, please. Uh, I'm Saskia Sassen from Columbia University. You described marvelously, really. I really enjoyed it. Sort of different architectures of diplomacy, you know, across time. If you look at today... Is there any connection? Can you sort of give us some sense, just, you know, free, free roaming? What is the architecture in which, say, the UK finds itself today beyond Brexit? Because okay. we have the wars, etc. Okay. Uh, we went through this period in the immediate aftermath of the end of the Cold War, when you remember Fukuyama's remark about the end of history, because it appeared uh, democracy was now universal, Market economy was universal, capitalism was triumphant. And so he came up with this very unwise remark about the end of history. Uh, I've always preferred the alternative phrase, as one door closes, another slams in your face. <laughs> um, and that's indeed what began to happen quite quickly, because it started with not the birth, but the rebirth of extreme nationalism in Europe, particularly in the Balkans. The Bosnian conflict, Serbs and Croats killing each other, ethnic cleansing, all that kind of thing, but also in parts of Russia or Soviet Union itself. So you had, uh, it wasn't as uniform and as healthy a change as had first been assumed. The West was rather triumphant, and the Russians, even under Yeltsin, but particularly after Yeltsin, got fed up with us in ways that we have seen. I think, in retrospect, that was going to happen anyway. There was no way in which a Russia, which was not yet determined to become democratic and rule of law as we understand it, there was no way that <coughs> authoritarian Russia could integrate with Western institutions uh, because uh, occasionally you had people like Yeltsin and Putin saying, we'd like to join NATO, and why can't we not be in the European Union? As if it was simply a political statement 
but it's not. I mean, these are values-based organizations. So that, that was always going to be a problem. We then came to the period, most notably with the Iraq War, where both Bush and Blair, but many others as well, thought that the West had this window of opportunity with military superiority to get rid of nasty dictators and recreate them or create for the first time democracies where they'd never existed. And it, there was an element of naivety, obviously, um, but I, I, I think they believed it in themselves, even if it was very foolish policy. So we have now come to a situation where the very success of the capitalist system relative to other systems that might have been used has meant that the West no longer has a monopoly of prosperity. The emerging markets that are dramatically improving their standards of living in China, which is a capitalist system, albeit a state form of capitalism, in China, in India, in Indonesia, in South America, even parts of Africa now, there is real uh, dramatic change. Uh, I don't think that's going to lead to the United States uh, ceasing to be the dominant power for a very long time to come. Uh, because the, somebody said the U.S. was not just a superpower, it was a super-duper power. Uh, so dramatically different, whereas its economic wealth, its military capability and its uh, other uh, assets. So, trying to answer your question, um, we are a multilateral world. It's not simply the United States. Uh, the US cannot any longer get its own way by itself. It needs alliances. Uh, and the United Kingdom still, we, what we've done is we've thrown away one pillar of our diplomatic strength, the EU pillar, Foolishly, in my view, but we still have NATO, the Commonwealth, our economic strength, our military strength, our nuclear capability, uh, our values, our English language, all of which are huge assets if we use them sensibly. I think you could add our universities to that as well. I of course. Think. Of course. Including this one. Yes. Uh, there's a gentleman over here. I'll take two questions. There's a gentleman over here, and there's somebody up there, so I'll take one, two, please. Sir Malcolm, as a Scot who is uh, enthusiastic about Europe, if it comes to the crunch and if uh, Scotland uh, leaves the United Kingdom to remain in the EU, will you be pursuing a Scottish uh, passport or will you hold on to whatever passport remains? No way. I can either give you that short answer and then no move on to the next question. But, uh, no, let, me, let me just add a couple of things, if I may. Um, I don't think Mrs. Sturgeon is very keen on having another referendum because she's a very smart lady and she knows that she would probably lose it. And if you lose it twice in the space of two or three years, you can really say goodbye. Yes. Why do I think that? Because not, that's not just what I want to think. She has said herself uh, about two or three months ago in her speeches, and she, it was public speeches, but she was really speaking to her own radicals in her own party. She said, look... We lost 55 to 45 percent, much bigger margin than the Brexit referendum. And what people on both sides of the argument realized at the time was Scotland had become bitterly divided. Families were divided, communities were divided, and she has said, we can't go through that again. Hmm. And she has said, I don't want to win 51 percent to 49, because that would show that Scotland was still, <laughs> even if it was the other way around, hmm. bitterly divided. And she actually said in one speech, to, to be sensible about another uh, referendum, we should only have one, 
when there has been evidence for several months that the level of support for independence is running at about 60%. Now, there's never been anything remotely like that, uh, ever, in terms of Scottish interest in independence. Uh, and three very, very brief points as to why I think they would lose a referendum if they had one, even in the European context. First of all, and it's all since the last, in the last two years, the collapse of the oil price means there is now a gap in the Scottish budget of £13 billion a year that would have to be financed either by higher taxes or by major cuts in spending. And Scotland is a small country of only 5 million. Secondly, what about the currency? If you remember last time round, it was, we want to share the pound, it's our pound. That was always unlikely. It is now inconceivable. If we're envisaging an independent Scotland in the European Union when Britain isn't, you, you can't share the currency. They would have to either join the euro or create a Scottish currency neither of which will commend itself to the people of Scotland. And the third is, if you have an independent Scotland becoming independent in order to join Europe, because it wouldn't be to stay in, it would be to join, they have to apply. Uh, when the rest of the UK has come out, then for the first time since 1603, the Scottish-English border would be a hard border uh, with tariffs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and remember, Dr. Samuel Johnson, Englishman, famously said, the noblest prospect for the Scotsman is the high road to England. That would no longer be possible. <laughs> uh, somebody up there. Um, <clears throat> thank you, sir. Sir Malcolm, for your talk. It was really interesting. What I wanted to ask you, if you bear with me, um, is when we're talking about pragmatism, pragmatism for whom? So right at the start of your talk, you said um, lowly undersecretary is where you started off, but... To what extent do you think ministers are constrained in so much they're making policy to further their careers rather than make policy uh, pragmatically for the people, as it were? And what do you think could be done about that? Well, let me answer it this way, because uh, although I was not involved in having to take decisions on the Iraq war, I was defence secretary at the time of the Bosnian conflict. And there, too, there, there were deep divisions as to what uh, European countries should do. Uh, here you had ethnic cleansing taking part, Serbs and Croats and Muslims fighting each other. Um, and most of us took the view this was a form of civil war as a consequence of the collapse of Yugoslavia with the varying communities vying for territory and control. And we had a humanitarian obligation to help with uh, food, medicine, other forms of aid of that kind. And that might require some sort of military presence to protect the humanitarian convoys but we should not become competents. Uh, those of a conviction point of view, of which Mrs. Thatcher was one, and some many in the United States were also took this view, uh, we should be bombing lift and strike was their slogan. We should lift the arms embargo so that uh, arms were available to anyone, and we should bomb from the air. And they used the sort of arguments that Tony Blair used and George W. Bush used on Iraq. Uh, ethical, ethical obligations, get rid of this ghastly di dictators and despots and so forth. And the pragmatist response is not to disagree with all of that, it's to say, okay, yes, getting rid of Saddam Hussein is highly desirable and the world would be a better place without him. Uh, yes, we could probably do that militarily fairly quickly, such as our military superiority. But how certain are you as to how you're going to fill the vacuum you've caused when you remove that regime? What work has been done on that? And uh, I use that as just a hard example 
But it's the example you must always ask yourself if you're responsible for foreign policy. It's not just what is the ethical uh, dimension, but what is your best judgment, your judgment and of those around you, what is the best judgment as to what will actually happen? And anybody who knew Iraq, for example, knew that the, the dictatorship that you would be removing was not just a personal dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. For 70 years, Iraq had been ruled by the Sunni minority, who were 20% of the population. And the Shia had always been treated as second-class citizens. If you replace that, however ethically right, um, by uh, getting rid of the regime, uh, having one man, one vote, having democratic elections, you get uh, a, a complete reversal of not just the individuals, but of the whole power system. And you not only get that, but you entrench it. It's rather like Northern Ireland. Why, do, why have we had to end up with an institutional coalition in Northern Ireland? Mm. Because the demographics of Northern Ireland mean the Catholic parties could never win. They were a permanent minor. As long as people were voting on the grounds of religion or community-based choices, you had a permanent majority and a permanent minority. So the whole concept of a, of a parliamentary system can't work comfortably in that kind of situation. So I'm giving you in a rather convoluted way what I hope is a response, saying, you know, these are things that were not suddenly discovered after the war. Mm -hmm. They were already available to anyone who was interested in finding out. Uh, but, you, you know, pragmatists are more likely to find out than people who start off with convictions and don't want to have their convictions disturbed. Why, then, are the pragmatists so often overruled, then? Well, are they? I, th I, I think, ultimately, they usually win. Uh, but, you know, what, what ten, uh, well, are you thinking of a particular example? I, mean, um, well, I thought there's a rather pragmatic case for staying in the European Union, unless I'm completely too LSE, you know. <laughs> I thought well, there was a pretty good, strong, pragmatic case against the Iraq war. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you could argue... The experts, if you like, the much derided experts, yeah, yeah. are the ones who could have come out with egg on their faces. Right, right but, you know... Even though they were right. Most, you know, an awful lot of the electorate, and this doesn't just apply in a referendum, it applies mm. in a general election as well. Sure. They instinctively vote for one side or the other. Mm. They don't give a fair, you know, detailed balance uh, of the pluses and minuses. They, don't, they get on with their lives. They're not really... They're interested in the impact it will have on their own lives, on their own communities. But if they have certain either uh, aspirations or resentments, that can be reflected. And that applies to all of us in one form or another. But people who take a particular interest in politics are more likely to go into the detail as well. And the, uh, the people I'm saying should be pragmatists are the people who are taking the decisions. Yes. No, they're, they're, they're the, the ministers, but the politicians. I, 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 sorry. The one thing I would ask, though, or at least suggest as a possibility, that what the, what the Brexit vote proves is that the one thing a large number of people in this country, 17 million, are not, are, prag are pragmatists. I mean, that was a very romantic vote. That was a vote with guts. That was, with guts, I might put it. What, those who voted for, for was, Brexit or against? Uh, for, for getting out of the European Union. Wasn't, there was something which was so surprising to the rationalists, to those who thought that people would vote with their material interests. Look, all, all, in, all in a along, pragmatic way. All along, we knew it was going to be a pretty tight vote. Sure. The vast majority of the opinion polls suggested that Remain would win 51, 52, 53 yeah. percent. Now, as it so happens, it was the other way around. Sure, sure, sure. You know, well, in either case, you had virtually half the population voting one way and half the other. Sure, sure, so, you, you, but you, you had people in what was more interesting, I think, 
although obviously it was the overall result that decided the outcome, but what was more interesting were the regional variations. It wasn't a north-south divide. You know, Scotland and London were the two parts of the country that voted most overwhelmingly to stay. But even in Scotland and London, 40% voted for Brexit. You know, so the population as a whole was pretty evenly divided, even though there were these regional variations. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, gentleman here, please. Yeah. And yeah, so you've touched upon sovereignty and you've said the importance of that in people's consciousness when making decisions of this kind. Uh, now Could you use the microphone a bit more clearly? No, just put closer to you. Yeah, okay. So in the context of that, in terms of uh, Scotland and, you know, it had, we had a vote of referendum of independence previously and, they, you know, Scotland decided to share its sovereignty and recently, as you've just now highlighted, that uh, it's willing to share its sovereignty with EU as well right now. But in the wider context of the EU, so thinking about Spain, for example, in Catalonia, what that would mean uh, if Scotland decides to go down that route, what would be your advice if you were a Scottish politician? What would the Scotland strategy be now, now that the exit has happened? Uh, on, on what? what you... On the next steps. So what, what is Scotland's well, strategy? We had the referendum less than two years ago. 55% of Scottish voters said they wanted to be part of the United Kingdom. If you're part of the United Kingdom, then there are certain decisions that can only be taken at the United Kingdom level. Uh, you cannot have a United Kingdom or any country cannot exist and function if parts of that country can say, well, uh, we haven't voted for this, therefore we are not bound by it. Uh, if, if, if you take that view, then you're a nationalist, not a unionist, and you, you should be going for a completely separate status. So uh, I don't think there's been any fundamental change in that. I, you see, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I fail to understand with the, the Scottish nationalists uh, is that they are, they're quite happy to share sovereignty with all the other European countries, <laughs> uh, but to share sovereignty with England is somehow beyond the pale, uh, even although it's been a very successful union for 300 years. Uh, I, and I just find that rather foolish and, and, and unconvincing. Fortunately, most Scots seem to take that view as well. General over there. Um, contrary to Michael's statement, I think Brexit is commensurable with our long history with Europe. We're always knocking their grand projects on the head. And I want to know whether you've seen any signs of this within the European Union. And another point, if I may, um, 30 years ago I used to enjoy your conferences at Edinburgh University. And the Americans said that in order to we had to replace Polaris because the Russians were very, very good at hunting submarines. Um, would you care to comment on that? No, we replaced Polaris with Trident because Polaris had become out of date. The Russians were very good at hunting submarines. Are we not taking on a Maginot line? How many questions do you need? I mean, what's the, what's the main question you're asking? Would you care to comment? Is Europe showing any signs about our Brexit? Is that whole edifice going to crack up? And do we really need this new nuclear deterrent? Is it really... All right. it Let me deal with the nuclear deterrent. Two in, two in one there. Otherwise, it would take too long. Uh, on the nuclear deterrent issue, uh, the, the issue has to be... Uh, I mean, it's, there are those who will be pacifists who say nuclear weapons are bad. They, should, they can never be justified. I respect their view, but I don't agree with it. Uh, I think that... We've had nuclear weapons for 60, 70 years. I think there is a powerful argument that during the Cold War, they were one of the reasons, not the only reason, but they were one of the reasons why the Cold War never became a hot war. 
and we'd never, I mean, two world wars began in Europe and uh, they themselves caused millions of people to die and I think that has caused, caused a discipline not just in the West but also in the Soviet Union there was a realization that any conflict could lead to the nuclear dimension. Now one of the most disturbing developments in the last couple of years has the extent to which Vladimir Putin now talks about nuclear weapons a lot and has even used language which suggests uh, that <coughs> theater nuclear weapons, which are the substrategic ones, which could in theory be used to fight a conventional war, uh, might be uh, the way in which they would resort if things got difficult. In other words, he's been deliberately ratcheting up the atmosphere to try to create a public opinion which would force the West to change its position. Um, now, I think that's dangerous stuff. And it seems to me that unless you have absolute guaranteed evidence that the United States for the next 50 years will be prepared to give an umbrella of guarantee to Europe that American nuclear weapons will always be available in the event of Russian aggression, then to give up the nuclear weapons we currently have, it would be very, very foolish. And uh, until recently, I would have said... Yes, of course, the Americans will give that guarantee for the foreseeable future, mm. but who knows who might be running America 20, 30 years from now. Now I have to say who knows who will be running America nine months from now. <laughs> because Trump himself I mean, has actually said, when asked about the Article 5 NATO guarantee, which is underpinned by America's nuclear capability, well, we might uh, come to the help of the Baltic states, but only if we think they're doing their carrying out their responsibilities incredibly irresponsible remark to make, which will have uh, been noted down in Moscow uh, by those whose job it is to do such things. Yeah, there was somebody at the top there. I'll take that, please. Is there not? Oh, right, they got shy. Okay, gentleman in red here. Uh, thank you. Um, sir, you mentioned earlier on in today that Britain would survive uh, Brexit. But do you think that Britain would thrive um, after this result? And how long do you do think... Do I think Britain will do what? Uh, do you think it will thrive? Thrive, again? yes. yes. And do you, how long do you think it will take uh, for Britain perhaps to thrive again? And um, if I may, another question. Um, do you think that if uh, the people were given a second chance, a second referendum, <laughs> do you think we'd have a different result? Okay. Uh, <laughs> on, on, on the first, first point, yes, I think we will thrive. You can see, I can believe that, and I can demonstrate why I can believe that. Uh, that doesn't mean we are not going to be also losing a certain amount of trade, a certain amount of influence, uh, and some things will be more difficult than they would otherwise have been. And what worries me most is we're going to spend the next two or three years with some of our best brains in the civil service and the diplomatic service uh, having to spend all their time trying to deal with damage limitation. And even if they succeed, it means there can be nothing in their intrays that they can get on with, which might have been more productive. So there's a huge amount of energy is going to be used simply to try and get back to where we already were, and that is uh, unfortunate. Uh, your second question was on? A uh, second referendum. Uh, I, I can only conceive of one circumstance in which you could do that. Uh, I think if, and I don't expect this, but if the negotiations with the EU, uh, if, the, if the government was persuaded and was successful in getting some major concessions from the EU on free movement of labor and said, well, we've got now an agreement which gives us back some control over the migration issues, more than we've ever had before, 
not as a promise, but as a hard fact. Uh, and if people like Boris Johnson and some of the others said, well, if only we'd had that before, that's, that would have made a big difference, um, then you could, in theory, uh, have the issue looked at again. But it couldn't just be looked at by Parliament. It would have to be, because it was decided by a referendum, it could only be reversed by a referendum. Uh, and I, having created, given you a hypothetical situation, <laughs> do I believe this will happen? No, I don't. <laughs> I think it's hugely unlikely. But stranger things have happened in the past. Okay, I've got a lady down here in the front, please. Hi. Um, this is a slight change of subject, but you were my MP. Ah, right. And I just wanted to say and let everyone know what a great MP you were yeah, for the constituency. Very kind. All right, very good. <laughs> now he has to come to the LSE and leave Kings, doesn't he, after that, I think. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, right. Oh, excellent. That's, that's kind of cool. Anybody else like to give me yeah, a Anybody compliment? else? Want? No, no, no. <laughs> You've got another 15 minutes if anybody else wants. As they always say, Malcolm, quit you're ahead. You're quit, 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 quit while you're ahead. ahead. There's a gentleman at the back, and then I'm going to come to a lady over here. Where, where are you? Yeah, please, over here. Yeah. At the top... Yes. Um, taking into account all the other problems in, in the EU at the moment, not only with Brexit, but what's going on in uh, Austria, um, France, southern, uh, the southern European countries, where do you expect the EU to be in the next 10 years? I think the, I mean, obviously what the other European governments are most worried about because of Brexit is that there will be some temptation to go the same way in other EU member states. Uh, the only one where that is, a, I think, a serious risk in the short to medium term would be France if Marine Le Pen's National Front really did do well in the presidential election. Uh, it's unlikely they will actually win the presidency, but they have a, if, if God forbid they did, then one of their platforms is that France should also have a referendum on membership, and that could obviously have catastrophic implications for the EU as a whole. Uh, I don't think that will happen in France, and I don't think there's even the slightest possibility in the short to medium term of that happening in other EU countries because for various reasons they all have a very strong interest of a kind that wasn't relevant in our case. If you think, for example, of all the Central and East European countries uh, that used to be part of the Soviet bloc, being in the EU together with being in NATO is their insurance policy against Moscow. It gives them a security, however much they might dislike aspects of the EU in Poland, in Hungary, elsewhere. Uh, it, it's, the plus side is overwhelmingly in their favor. For the Mediterranean countries, it's economically in their favor. I'm not sure the single currency is. Uh, I think the, the single currency, because it imposes a currency with a value far greater than their own economies, uh, can uh, be comfortable with. I can see some of these countries coming out of the Eurozone eventually, not just Greece, but one or two of the others as well. But they won't come out of the European Union if they have any choice in the matter. And when, it, and when you take these countries into account, you're then left with the, the original core countries, the original six, mm. France, Germany, Italy, Benelux, and a few others like Austria and Slovenia. And, uh, that have, uh, they are actually still, by pretty large majorities, committed to the European ideal. It doesn't necessarily mean they want much more integration, but they can certainly live with the status quo indefinitely, without any serious risk or pressure to leave. Mm. I've got a question over here. Yeah, please. Um, 
Do you think that because of the relationship between China and the US, there could be another Cold War? And is it sensible to perceive China as an international threat? Right. A very good question about China. Um, first, my starting point has to be that the China we are seeing today, we shouldn't be surprised about because China should have been as important as it now is 50 years ago. A country the size of China, uh, with the size of its population, with its history, with its culture, if it hadn't been for the lunacy of Mao Zedong, cultural revolution, great leap forward and all the idiocies of the economic system they imposed on China, we always knew the Chinese would be superb capitalists. How do we know that? <laughs> because Taiwan is, because Hong Kong is, because Singapore is, all Chinese societies, uh, and we know the Chinese are very good at working a market system or a capitalist system. Uh, I think the issue now is not that China is going to be a great power, but how it's going to use its power. And uh, what's happening at the moment with the South China Sea, uh, China has serious disputes with almost all its neighbors, uh, with Japan, with South Korea, with Taiwan, obviously, but also with Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, and so forth, various territorial claims. And the nearest historical parallel is not a very comfortable one. It's a bit like um, when Germany first became united in the 19th century, uh, from 1870, Franco-Prussian War, and then right through till 1914, Germany was a recently uh, had become a big power, was using its strength, believing it had uh, been unfairly treated in the past, uh, claiming things that others would not concede, and that led to disaster with the First World War. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but what you are seeing is some very unexpected alliances. The United States and Vietnam, of all countries, have become close allies, because the Vietnamese are very anti-Chinese. Historically, they always have been. But you now have also <laughs> India and Japan having joint naval exercises. Now, that would never have happened in the past. So you're getting the, all these countries on the rim of China feeling rather nervous, knowing by, each of them by themselves cannot withstand Chinese pressure. But if they act more together, together with the United States, which is very much involved, uh, then China can be restrained. So what we must hope for is Chinese are pretty wise people I and mean, they're very smart guys, uh, obviously, because without saying. And we must hope that they realize that ultimately what is often referred to as a, a rule-based international society is a lot better way to proceed. Uh, the way in which they reacted to the Court of Arbitration on the South China Sea Islands was very disturbing because they didn't just say we disagree with it, but they used pretty aggressive language, showing that they were you know, totally contemptuous of any attempt to restrain their uh, policy. I've got somebody over here. So I've only got one microphone downstairs. LSC is going broke. Uh, a person over here. What do you think the prospects are for the Parliamentary Labour Party, and how do you see that predicament playing out? <laughs> do you want to... I don't want to the internal yeah. affairs of another party. Or otherwise, I don't want to intrude on private grief. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I know what's, no, no, I will say something about it, though. Yeah, no, um, uh, I think what is most relevant, and all <coughs> parties have internal divisions. The Tory party has internal divisions. Um, but the Labour Party is one at the moment is existential. In our case, we've had this deep division over Europe for many years, in a sense, it's now been resolved by the results of the referendum, although we'll still have lots of angry discussions about 
what compromises might be made in the negotiations. The Tory party has got no existential reason to split uh, as a party. The question about the Labour Party is, has it perhaps fulfilled its historical purpose? You know, I mean, right up to the 1920s, it was the Liberal Party that was the alternative government to the Tories. Uh, the Liberals then collapsed, uh, and the Labour Party became the alternative government. Uh, Blair, in one sense, I'm not a fan of Blair's, but Blair, in one sense, was right. If you, if you want something called the Labour Party to survive and win elections, it cannot simply present itself as a left-wing socialist party. All the evidence suggests it will be rejected by the electorate. Now, the Labour MPs know that. Uh, the party members, particularly those who have joined recently, uh, either don't know or don't care. And if, uh, if Corbyn was to win the leadership election, what I would think will happen is I don't think there will be a, a gang of four like we had 30 years ago with Roy Jenkins and Shirley Williams formally splitting and creating a new party. I think what will happen is at least for the next three or four years, Corbyn will be leader of the Labour Party, but the parliamentary party will elect its own leader. And say so in the House of Commons, we are still, as far as we're concerned, we're Labour MPs. Uh, we are the true Labour Party. Uh, we will have our own decisions as to how we're going to vote against the Conservative government. And then when the general election comes, my guess would be there will be pretty well two Labour candidates in every constituency. Mm. And the, the public, the Labour voting public, will be invited to choose which kind of, not, not, not the members, the, the public will be invited to vote for whichever Labour candidate they want to have as their MP. Now, that's all my splendid concept, but I, I think that's the way it's moving. And some variant of that is likely to happen if Corbyn wins. Mm. I've got a gentleman over here and then a gentleman behind. Yeah, Thanks. please. My question actually concerns the recent Tory leadership contest. Yes. I think most people are probably aware of your personal opinions on the various candidates. Um, but as somebody who knew Margaret Thatcher, can I ask you to speculate on who she would have supported? Okay. Well, well about my own views on the various candidates, I think you're referring to the fact that a conversation I had with Ken Clark uh, appeared on Sky Television, although it wasn't meant to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the one good fortune I had, any of you who know Ken Clark will know that if you are in a conversation with Ken, you can't get a word in edgeways. Ah. Uh, he just goes on and on. Very interesting stuff. But I, <laughs> I think one remark that I made was recorded for the nation. Uh, the rest was his own thoughts. Now, your, your question was about Mark. What Mar uh, Theresa May is not Margaret Thatcher. Uh, <laughs> she, she, she's a very tough lady. She's a very able lady. She's a very ruthless lady. If I have to make a comparison, and I'm not, I'm not the only person to have done this, I would say she's more like Angela Merkel. Uh, she is, uh, they both are daughters of clergymen. She was probably brought up on what was called the Protestant work ethic once upon a time. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had a bit of that as well, but the difference is, is one of personality. Margaret was charismatic, which neither Angela Merkel nor Theresa May are particularly so. Uh, she was aggressive. Uh, she actually made a virtue of her aggressiveness. It didn't just happen. It was a part of her personal stamp. Um, and she had a much more extrovert and uh, dramatic qual theatrical quality to her. So as they're very different kinds of people. Who would she have supported? Um, mm. I think probably she would have ended up supporting Theresa May um, because Theresa... Although she was on the Remain side, she was very close to the Brexit position. But on balance, she decided that in terms of Home Office responsibilities, 
we would lose more than we would gain by leaving, and that influenced her. I can't see Margaret having voted for Boris. Uh, <laughs> I just don't think they would have been soulmates. Uh, I, must, I must tell you, um, as, as we're now into Boris' territory, uh, my most delightful experience, I've known Boris for years, and I had two experiences with him when he first ran for mayor. I was campaigning with some of my colleagues for him in uh, Kensington. Boris was not with us, but we had our rosettes, and an elderly lady came up and said, which candidate are you supporting? And I said, Boris Johnson. And she said, oh, that's all right. I'm his mother. (laughs) (laughs) The other episode was the same election, two or three days later. Uh, It was announced that Boris was going to do a walkabout from uh, the King's Road in Chelsea to Sloane Square. And William Hague and I were asked, would we be there to support him? Which we did, but we were a complete waste of time. I mean, nobody was interested remotely in us. And what should have taken 15 minutes uh, took an hour and a quarter, because it was a sort of royal progression. And the, the buses went heap, honk, honk, and the taxi drivers went, and so forth. And I have a wonderful recollection of a young woman, she must have been about 19 or 20, having just got Boris's autograph. And she came towards me with a seraphic smile on her face, clutching the book, And I said to her, are you going to vote for Boris? And she said, no. And I said, but why not? She said, sorry, what I said to her, forgive me, I'm ruining the story. I said to her, are you going to vote for Mr. Johnson? And she said, no. And I said, why not? And she said, I'm voting for Boris. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't bother explaining. but uh, (laughs) I mean, he had that rare quality, which Ken Livingston also had, that everyone knew about him by the, the first name. You didn't have to mention the surname. Yeah. They, they, they were just national names. Some have it. Uh, and we're going to take one final question. I'm sorry okay. I couldn't bring everybody in. Please, sir. Uh, we've seen a devastating effect of reduced oil prices on countries around the world. Um, and going forward with the introduction of the electric car coming on stream, you know, and lots of, co- lots of companies putting forward their, their new, pro- new products, um, do you, how, do you see that as, uh, how do you see that affecting political alliances moving forward, traditional uh, political alliances? Well, if you get either electric cars or some other source of energy, then obviously the single most important political consequence is the geopolitical implications for all the oil-producing countries, uh, which is not just the Middle East, but Russia. I mean, 70% of Russia's uh, exports are oil and gas. Uh, Venezuela, uh, you know, a whole range of countries... Uh, including the Middle East themselves, so it has massive consequences of that kind. Um, I mean, I could, one could give a whole lecture uh, on, on the consequences, but that, 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 from a political point of view, that is the most immediate factor one has to bear in mind. And some people say it's already happening because of American fracking, is meaning America is not as dependent on the Middle East as it once was. Okay, I think we're going to have to bring the proceedings to an end. I've, I've learned a number of things this evening. Firstly, about the reading habits of the Gorbachevs. Uh, I thought you were going to say Marx and Engels, and you said Hobbes and Locke. I've secondly found out that we taught armed struggle at the LSE at some point. I'd have to go back and find out who was doing it. Probably somebody in sociology, no doubt. Uh, I've also found out that you kind of have a rather you know, hidden admiration, if not so hidden, for de Gaulle. I've also found out you're a great MP, which I think was very nice. So, so thank, have I. <laughs> thank you. And now you know it well. Anyway, I'd like firstly to thank all of you for coming this evening, asking a lot of good, very good questions. I'd like to thank all the staff from LSC Ideas, that's Joe, Adriana, and Marta. But most important of all, I'd like to thank you, Sir Malcolm, for delivering a great lecture and dealing with all the questions very directly and clearly. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.